This is entitled, When Wealth Gets in Your Way. We'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 6 through the end of the chapter. My sources include Philip Graham Ryken's uh, commentary on 1 Timothy, uh, Michael Bentley's commentary called Passing on the Truth from 1 Timothy, William Hendrickson New Testament commentary on Timothy, and Stephen J. Cole, his studies in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll start at verse 6. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and, in, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of, of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses and in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then skipping to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. And thank you for the truth in your word. Help us today on this holy week to look inside of ourselves and do an inventory of ourselves and see how we compare with your word. Give us grace today, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's interesting to me that on this Palm Sunday, our text mentions a key figure in Holy Week, that being Pontius Pilate. Paul reminds Timothy about his own confession of faith when he says in verse 12, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then Paul goes on to mention the good confession made by our Lord Jesus in the presence of Pontius Pilate. Pilate is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed to plant the work of Jesus Christ to a specific time and place in history. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about that when we repeat the Apostles' Creed. Well, why would they put somebody like Pontius Pilate in there as a way of tying it to history? 
Pilate's place in history was confirmed in the 1960s when archaeologists discovered on the steps of the great amphitheater in Caesarea a Latin inscription that reads this way. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. This was the same Pontius Pilate who condemned Jesus to death. He was the one who asked Jesus when Jesus appeared before him in John chapter 19, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And in an effort to get under Pilate's skin, I love Jesus' answer in verse 34. Is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? (laughs) So Pilate, in frustration, would ask Jesus that question again. But before he did, Jesus replied in John 19, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And so my question this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do we believe that we are, like Jesus, not of this world? Do we live like that? Are we laying a firm foundation for the coming age? Or are we more focused on laying a firm foundation for our family? Which is what Paul was getting at as he brought to a close his letter to Timothy. So look, I I get it. Do you get it? I mean, think about the fact that we are called to live in another kingdom while living in this kingdom of this world. These are not easy questions. But even so, let's look at what we can learn today from our text. And let's look at three lessons. The first of which is your goal is to be content. Your goal is to be content. And how many of you have lived a long life and you are not yet content in that life? Or how many of you have lived years and years and you're still searching for something that will make you feel contentment? You know, I've learned that there's something to be said for enjoying where you are at this moment in time rather than looking beyond to something that is better. You know, my wife and I talked about last night this whole thing of contentment as I was visiting with her about where I was going with this first point. And uh, she said, you know, think about parents. How many times when our child was born, we wanted them to crawl. And then when they were crawling, we wanted them to walk. And when they were walking, we wanted them to slow down. And when they were, you know, growing older, we wanted them to, to get to this stage where they could maybe drive and help us out a little bit with the car rides. And, and, and all these things we're pushing, we're pushing to the next stage rather than enjoying where we are at this moment in time. And so Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's something to be seeking for and looking for. And so when Paul talked about contentment, he was describing this this inner fullness that wasn't contingent on material comforts. In fact, in his own case, he'd experienced contentment in some very uncomfortable situations. Second Corinthians describes a partial list of some of the encounters of the Apostle Paul, which included being shipwrecked. I mean, have you ever been shipwrecked? Not a fun experience, I'm sure. Uh, ever been flogged, which is to be beaten with whips. 
Paul experienced that. Have you ever been mugged? Paul was mugged. Uh, treacherous river crossings, nights without sleep, hunger. He mentions all these things that he's endured, yet he was still able to, to experience a measure of contentment. I mean, how do you stand up to a list like that? And in our text, when Paul challenged Timothy to a, a lifestyle of contentment, he drew upon the logic of transience. The logic of transience. Basically, not only is our stuff temporary, And we'll come and go, but so will we. We're temporary. We don't think of ourselves as temporary, but we are temporary. He reminds us of a powerful truth. If you look back in the text in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Think about that. We all enter the world and exit the world in the same way. As one of my sources puts it, quote, all belongings must be checked at graveside. You know, it was a particularly difficult day the other day, and and Bo and I knew that, and so Bo sent me a text uh, with a picture. And it it says, uh, it was, I think, a Twitter uh, picture that he had gotten, and it says, so much for that sermon illustration. And it was a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And that's what, you know, preachers have said forever. You don't ever see a hearse pull your U-Haul. Well, so much for that sermon illustration. <laughs> Paul's words can sound out of place, almost wrong. But there's something tremendously liberating in his counsel to us. Basically, he presents us with an important reminder that you and I must find our life and we must find the secret of our contentment By finding our identity in the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of relationship with the living God where you are contented? And and it's about the giver and his gifts. You find your contentment in the giver, not in the gifts. But we tend to get it all backwards, don't we? So let's look at the next verse. In verse 8 of chapter 6. Where he says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. (laughs) Will we be content with that? I mean, you could be like a growing number of homeless people that you see walking around our city. You could be. But the fact that you're here today and wearing nice clothes... Tells me that you're doing, as the golf announcer Gary Koch says, better than most. Better than most. The Apostle Paul knew what it meant to be content. If you'll turn with me to the letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi, it's the Philippians letter, chapter 4. He talks about this, this thing of contentment. And, and all he had been through, for anybody to be content, it had to be a gift from God. So look at chapter 4 of Philippians Verse 11. See, the Philippians had sent Paul a love gift, and he received the gift, and he rejoiced because it had been like ten years since he had heard from them. And so he says in verse 10, I rejoiced. At last you renewed your concern for me. At last I've heard from you. And then in verse 11 he says, Now I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
And then in verse 12, listen to what he says. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So he says it twice. In verse 11, he says, I've learned to be content. He says in verse 12, I have learned to be content. Is he being redundant? No, not at all. The first word in verse 11, where it says, I have learned, means to be instructed. And the second in verse 12 means to be initiated into a secret. It's kind of like learning how to swim. Outside of the water, you learn the method. But it's only when you're initiated, that is, when you get wet, that you really learn how to swim. And it would seem that Paul was always getting initiated, taking lessons in the school of hard knocks. But what impresses me the most is that Paul never lost sight of the goal. He remained content throughout whatever ordeal he faced because, he says, because of Christ. Because of Christ. And look at verse 13. This is a verse that many of you quote. Have you ever thought about why you quote it? Here's the context in verse 13. He says, after saying, I've learned to be content, I've learned to be content, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. No, I, I can't broad jump, you know, as long as I want to. It's not what he's saying. I, I can't, you know, walk across, you know, hot coals. I can't jump across a building. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about miracles. He's saying, I can face everything I'm facing in my life, whatever God brings my way. Through Christ, who strengthens me. Is that where your contentment is found? That was his secret. That was Paul's secret. Not ignoring his circumstances. It wasn't even rising above his circumstances or even resigning himself to them. Instead, it was living in them in Christ. You know, the false teachers in Timothy's city thought of, quote, godliness as a means to financial gain in verse 5. And to understand this, we would need to know that religion was big business in Ephesus, the home of the goddess Diana. So most agree that in the same way, the false teachers tried to market Christianity, which you might call the first generation of the health and wealth gospel. And so Paul was actually speaking to those people who were actually promoting this health wealth teaching and making money off the gospel to saying that's not the way. The goal is to be content, and the contentment that you have must come through Christ, not through what you have. So that's the first lesson. Your goal is to be content. Lesson number two, your desire is not to get rich. Your desire is not to get rich. How many of you know who Jeff Foxworthy is? I'm a big fan of Jeff Foxworthy. I like his comedy. Blue collar comedy, a lot of times it's called. And I think his favorite bit for most people is, you might be a redneck. Right? Okay, that, that's a good one, isn't it? For example, if you have a complete set of salad bowls, and they all say cool whip on the side, you might be a redneck. If you've ever used your ironing board as a buffet table, you might be a redneck. If you missed your fifth grade graduation because you had jury duty, you might be a redneck. 
And if you think that fast food is hitting a deer at 65 miles an hour, then you might be a redneck. In the vein of you might be a redneck, I'm going to go with you might be a rich neck. You might be a rich neck. If you've ever been to the casino and not just to eat, you might be a rich neck. If you've ever entered the clip publisher's clearinghouse, you might be a rich neck. If you've ever lived somewhere and bought a lottery ticket, you might be a rich neck. And I don't know if you've ever lived where they sell lottery tickets, but I have. And you know what's irritating? To be in a line at a little 7-Eleven or whatever, and all you want is to buy a Hershey's candy bar, and you're behind 18 people buying a lottery ticket. And that's the only line. Bunch of rich necks. If you're in that line like me buying chocolate, you're probably not a rich neck. But you know what? We all can be rich next. Look at verse 9 of the text. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I want you to think of the progression here. If you're following in the outline, the progression begins with the desire. The desire. Those who want to get rich. You want to get rich? That's where it starts. The love of money. It doesn't say that money's a root of all evil. It says the love of money. And some people, it says eager for money. There's the desire. And then secondly is the deception. The deception. It says they fall into temptation and a trap. They wandered from the faith. And Don and I had a friend years ago that was such a great ministry worship leader in a church that I served as youth director. And he got into a pyramid scheme and he started making lots of money to the point where he he didn't need the ministry anymore. So he quit his job because he's making so much money. Really broke our hearts. The deception can be there. And then third, the, the destiny. He says... Plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. Pierce themselves with many griefs. So, so here's a principle for you. The root determines the fruit. The root determines the fruit. The love of money is a root sin. I mean, think about it. You're free to plant, plant any kind of seed you want in your yard this spring. But once they take root, you're not free to pick a different kind of fruit. You're going to pick the fruit that you plant. I have some wild onions in my yard that I did not plant. Not as many as I used to have because I pulled them up. All of them that I could find by the roots. It was really, really hard work. In the same way, if you let money, the love of money, take root, it's like those onions. They will dominate you, and in the end, you will reap ruin and destruction. I don't know many people who sit down and make a conscious decision... And say, I think I'm going to abandon my faith. It just happens. Usually. Gradually. The sheer pace of life drives away the focus on Jesus Christ and the focus on His preeminence in our lives. 
And for one person, maybe there's something that comes up this weekend. Or maybe there's something that comes up the next weekend. And then the next weekend. And then the next weekend. And before you know it, oh wow. You know, I've missed church for over a month now. And I don't think I've really missed it. You see, it begins with thoughts like that. Those who miss church on a regular basis, they find it increasingly easy to be absent again and again and again. So be careful with those desires. Some of them, some of those desires, not all of them, but some of them are the whispers of Satan. The whispers of Satan drawing you away to a good thing. He wants more than anything to get you away from meeting with the people of God. Which is why Paul is calling you and I to be more devoted, all the more devoted to the Lord Jesus and to his word. Because his word is truth and the truth will set you free. So your goal is to be content. Your desire is not to get rich. And then thirdly, your hope is to be in God. Your hope is to be in God. Remember Tevye? The poor Jewish Russian farmer in Fiddler on the Roof. He's the one who sang, If I were a rich man. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not rich, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, that means you're mistaken on at least two counts. In the first place, living in America means that even though you might be poor by American standards, you're rich by the world's standards. Second, many times those who lack money actually have more of a craving for it than those who have it. So, guess what? Every single one of you, at the sound of my voice, are rich. Every single one of you. We're all rich in comparison to the rest of this world. In fact, for many of you, if not most of you, you're in the top 1% of the 7 billion people in the world. Not the United States, the world. Important distinction. Now, to reach that top 1% status, you need to earn around $47,500 a year. That's about the average per capita income in the United States. That means that tens of millions of Americans are in the top 1%. But even if you're not, you're right up there. If you earn $25,000 per year, you're in the top 10%. And even if you earn the official poverty line in the United States, which is $11,344 a year, you're in the top 13% of all income earners, give or take a percentage point. So all that to say, you rich people, myself included, don't be arrogant. That's what verse 17 says, don't be arrogant. It's an important point that Paul makes to Timothy. If you're rich, don't brag about it. Don't act like you're more important than others who are less well off. In other words, be humble. We should all be humble. But his point is in verse 17. Command those, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. And how many times do we do that? Do we really trust our bank accounts? Which is so uncertain, if you trust the stock market, then you might understand what I'm talking about here, because you've seen it go up and down at times. But to put their hope in God, he says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He says, put your hope in God. 
the gospel is our hope, our only hope. We're all sinners saved only by the grace and mercy of our God. And if you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are not of this world. You're of another kingdom. And yes, we are to live in this world, but you don't belong to this world. And so we're not to live like this world. And that's a real hard distinction for us to make as we live in this world. It's a challenge. Paul says, if you want real enjoyment and there's nothing at all wrong with real enjoyment, put your hope in God. That is, thank God and give him praise for his provision in your life. We should take pleasure in the blessings of this life now because one day life will come to an end. Ecclesiastes 2, Ecclesiastes 3, Ecclesiastes 5, Ecclesiastes 9, Ecclesiastes 11. Read the book of Ecclesiastes and see the misery of trusting in this life. And that's really the point that the writer, the preacher is trying to get across in Ecclesiastes. If you hope in anything but God, it's just misery. It's just a chasing after the wind. And there's some other commands to go along with this. But let me read again for you 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. I hope that you'll take to heart these verses that we've already read today. Verse 18 says, Command them, all the people of the church, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And this is a very generous congregation. So in a sense, you might say, I'm preaching to the choir. You are. You are an amazingly generous congregation. But it comes down to the individuals, not just the church as a whole. Are you as an individual generous to those in need? In this way, he says, if you do that, you will lay up treasure for yourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. And his point as he closes up the letter is to say, There's a way to live and there's a way to live. And some of you are living the wrong way because you're living for yourself. Your hope is in your things, your stuff, and not in God. Brings us to our verse of the week, which is Matthew 619. Matthew 619. Let's read it from your outline together. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And James, the writer James, just like Jesus, said gold and silver rust, although everyone knew that they didn't. So why say it? To make a point. To make a point. Why are we given riches? So that we can help other people. Jesus once told a story about a rich farmer who was not generous or willing to share his wealth with others. He is a fool, Jesus said, who only thinks of himself. Those who are rich towards others are laying a good foundation for the age to come. And Paul said, if you live this way now, if you live this way now, you have taken hold of the life that is truly life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. And Lord, as we try to to negotiate and navigate our way through this, this difficult world, this lost world, 
We are to be shining like lights in this world because we belong to you. You are our king, Lord Jesus. And our kingdom is not of this world. So forgive us when we lose sight of that, when our focus becomes about how to lay aside treasure for us on this earth, treasure that will one day go away. Help us, Lord, to lay aside treasures in heaven, to build for our eternal kingdom. So forgive us, Lord, when our priorities get all out of whack and when we make unwise choices And go with those that are going the wrong direction. Help us, Lord, to realize we are going against the flow. And so I pray that you'd give us grace today in this holy week. As we look to the things that our Lord Jesus laid before us. Lord Jesus, thank you for laying such a beautiful path before us. And yet it was a path that involved much suffering. And so give us grace this holy week that we might humbly receive Jesus is our king, Lord Jesus, not only our king of the past, be our king of the present and our king of the future. And give us grace to live with you as Lord of all over us, that we might please you, Lord, and honor you by the way we live and the way we hold forth the gospel. This holy week, help us. Help us as we remember your sufferings, Lord Jesus. And may we enter into those sufferings. And recognize all that you did for us this holy week, for which we give you praise and honor and glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King, I pray. Amen.